morning. We're too much scrolling. I'm Steve. I'm Chip. And we have all the information you need to survive another week. New shows published every Tuesday. Find us on iTunes and Stitcher and TuneIn Radio. And you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. We'll see you in the future. Hello, fellow time travelers. I'm Ian McNeese. Yes, I played Winston Churchill in The Victory of the Daleks in Doctor Who. And you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. I know I will. Bye now. Okay, so remember, you know, just like Cheryl Steinberg or whatever her name is, lean in. Cheryl. Lean in. <laughs> Cheryl. Daryl Steinberg? What no, no, no. Saying? You know, the start, the what's her name of uh, creator of uh, yes. whatever. Cheryl. Now I can't remember her name. I think you... it's Steinberg, but no. is it not? Daryl Strawberry. No. <laughs> no, that's not it at all. <laughs> Hang on, gotta Google. Oh, she's gonna Google it. I gotta Google. Like, <laughs> the wonders of modern technology. Cheryl Sandberg. Cheryl Sandberg, yes. Lean in like Cheryl Sandberg, like this. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club the podcast in which we take the carnivorous task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. Because chronovore. Carnivorous. Carnivorous. Yeah. 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 I try. Yeah. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have an always carnivorous three person discussion panel, including our so called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's also our intermediate level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts. And this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. And finally, we also have our semi-casual fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series, though that has changed recently, and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. As per Terrence Dix, I am sailing the good ship Women's Lib. Indeed. Mm-hmm. And, and all who sail. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. It's on her or in her. Either way, in it's her. not optimal phrasing. Y- it was not optimal phrasing. Jesus God. Before we get to talking about the book, <laughs> let's talk about our Patreon giveaway drive. In our hopes of getting more Patreons on board the good ship Women's Lib, between now and November 29th, the first day of Chicago TARDIS, any new Patreons will get a double entry in our giveaway. Woo! The winners of which will be announced at our live recording room party that night. The first prize is the unofficial Doctor Who Annual 1972, because as you know, they did not do a Doctor Who Annual 1972 for some strange reason, which means they've... They have done one now, and it is unofficial, but it's great. Uh, It has a uh, preface written by Katie Manning, so she Hmm. approves it. Uh The two second prizes will be special limited edition Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast t-shirts made to your specifications. All three of us will be at Chicago TARDIS, and we will be modeling these shirts. I'm finally coming. That's what she said. And, and the three, sorry, and the three third prizes will be a surprise book, not a Target book, since we already know you feed all of your extras to the Chronovores to keep them at bay. It'll be something. 
And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby's Bengelsdorf, and Jay Barry, all of whom will already be getting a single entry in the giveaway because we don't want to leave them out mm-hmm. because they've done so much for us, Thanks, including paying for this wonderful recording equipment, which is finally working now that I've downloaded the correct drivers. We got the Tom Tit all figured out. We, oh, the Tom Tit. Jesus <laughs> God. Yeah, we're going to have to talk about that, aren't we? The who? Tom, oh yes, I yeah, it's called yes. Tom Tit. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. You didn't say it in all caps. Yeah, it's so not. Tom, it's not it Tom Tit. Like the Tomcats don't have. Oh yes. <laughs> well, we don't want the police called on us. Yes. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurlcom forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We continue now with our discussion of the final story of season nine. The Time Monster. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who the Time Monster, adapted by Terrence Dix from a script by Robert Sloman that aired from 52072 to 62472, published by Target Books in February 1986. As of this recording in November of 2019, this title is currently out of print, 151 pages. Alright, so, The Time Monster is another one of those ill-regarded stories in some parts of fandom. The Discontinuity Guide went so far as to call it, and I quote, immensely dull and painful at the same time. (laughs) Paul Cornell said this. A dull pain. Of this story. Yes, of this story. Huh. You know Paul Cornell. Yeah. Actually, Dalton may not. Um, Paul Cornell is one of the writers of the New Adventures books. Okay. And he also, with two of his friends, wrote something called The Discontinuity Guide, which was a very irreverent guide to the series, which is great for its reviews. And he also went on to become a very well-known comic book writer and wrote um, the second episode of the new series, which is The Unquiet Dead. Okay. So that's Paul Cornell. Is the only episode he's written? No, he wrote another one. He wrote... I thought he wrote several. He wrote the one about the TVs during um, the coronation of Queen Elizabeth Mm. II. That's the one, the name of which I cannot remember because I cannot stand that episode. I'm sorry, Paul. But you said this was dull and painful at the same time, so there. That being said, it was the first Pertwee story I ever had on videotape for some reason. I taped it from PBS, so it holds an unusual place in my heart. Despite some galloping stupidity from time to time, and we do mean galloping, the story was originally meant to be the Dalek story for the season. But Robert Sloman's script, The Daleks in London, was starting to look a lot like Dalek Invasion of Earth, and both producer Barry Letts and script editor Terrence Dix thought it best to have the Daleks open the season instead. They still wanted a story from Sloman, though, and he was inspired by hearing a plane overhead and imagining what would have to happen if it were a World War I bomber flying over, leading to the idea of time slippages. And the time scoop. And the time scoop. Oh, yes. We'll have to talk about that because you get that reference now. Allison, yes. I don't think, has ever seen I'm the Five the Doctors. One in ignorance. Well, that's okay. We'll bring you out of it um, by giving you more wine. Uh, <laughs> no, let me just cut that now. Because in Vino uh, trivia? Is this how I, I don't this? know. I don't know. I'm sure that somebody will say, he said something inappropriate again. When the production team asked for the master unit and a historical setting, Barry Letts contributed much to the script, 
including the scene where the Doctor thinks back to his past on Gallifrey, a scene which would be revisited two seasons later in John Pertwee's last story. Mm. Yes, of course, Kitty. Danny? <laughs> will you do something about Kitty, please? Because I'm about to throttle him. I think I'll be able to edit that out. It is never made clear how the Atlantis here coordinates with the one we saw in the Underwater Menace, nor should it, because... They seemed pretty different. They were different, and at least we don't have Professor Zarkov this time, or Zaroff, or whatever. Mm. Nothing in the world can stoop me now! Yes. I know that sounds... Or stoop him. Or stoop him. (laughs) That's that's what she thought I heard. (laughs) Uh, Or the one that Azal claimed to have destroyed in the Demons. I don't think that was in the novelization, but it was in the televised story. He claimed to have destroyed Atlantis, so it's Mm. like, okay, how did it die? What Atlantis are we talking about? Are we talking about East Coast Atlantis, or are we talking about West Coast Atlantis? Because as we all know, if it's like West Coast Avengers, it sucks. How could there be a West Coast Atlantis? I don't know. Maybe there was an Atlantis on the West Coast of the continent, and there was one on the East Coast? I don't know. There are only other two noteworthy things about this one. It briefly introduces a new TARDIS console room that Barry Letts hated. So luckily it was damaged when the sets were taken down. I a mysterious have, accident occurred. Yes, yes, I have suspect that Barry Letts went in there overnight and just went, God, ugh, just and hammer, destroyed it. And while this was the last story of the season, it was not the last story produced. For the first time since the 1960s, a story from the next season was produced ahead of time as part of this recording block, one which we won't be reading until March when we return from our sabbatical or whatever we're calling it. That's going to be Carnival of Monsters, so it's not even the next story to air. The next story to air, of course, will be The Three Doctors. So, where do we begin? Well, we usually talk about first impressions, so um, Dalton, let's start with you, your first impressions of this one. Um... With with all the talk of uh, Atlantis, I was wondering when they were going to get there. <laughs> it, it took a little bit, but they, they finally did. Um, it's not my favorite. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we're talking about first impressions, you know, not last impressions. Well, not my favorite. <laughs> Uh, fr- okay. from, from the beginning, I was not so so into this. Mm. Kind of the, the same typical, oh no, the Master's got some people confused about his identity. Oh, yeah. Like, here we go again. I mean, it's it's serviceable. It's not horrible, but yeah, I'm, I'm just like... He's starting to outwear his welcome for you. I it's think. just like every story's the same with him. Yeah. It's like, come on. Yeah. Like, give me something more to go with. Be careful what you ask for. I mean, I want that. <laughs> if he's supposed to be the doctor's nemesis, a supreme, you know, like make him that. Now, okay. I'm afraid that Tony suggested that Dalton may be murdered by the master in the future. No, no. Now that he has asked for it, so no, to speak. No, 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 no. Be it's careful just... about asking for something more, Dalton. Well, the thing is, uh, this is giving nothing away. I think. As you do already know, Roger Delgado died in a car accident. So the see, the appearance he makes next season will be his last one. Hmm. And we won't get the Master again until, oh, three years later. And by then he'll be very, very different. Okay. So that's why I'm saying be careful what you ask for because it, it's almost not the same character. 
Which is fine, because is, he needs to be a different character for a little while. Yeah, or at least kind of, you know, prove why he is so feared. Like That's true. So, some of it is still, like, he's kind of the, the bumbling <laughs> nemesis. Curse like, is well, foiled again! Right, it's like, but you're supposed to be the big bad guy. Like, we're supposed to be as, as afraid of you as the Daleks and the Cybermen. But and it never reaches that. Every story he's in, he's never that level of like That's true. extreme. Even when he's like telling us about all the death and destruction he's going to bring upon Earth and the Doctor. It's like, but you still like... Yeah, you are... let him go every time you had a chance to kill him. But yeah. That's what I like about the Master, his self-delusion and his... Delusions well, of grandeur. It's definitely a, a part of him that it, it, it it's kind of endearing. <laughs> but again, if he's supposed to be this ultimate kind of like foil to the Doctor's good, true. Then okay, he's not delivering on it for me. Yeah, but, that's true. Well, we're obviously getting into discussing the Master really quickly. I don't want to leave Allison's first impressions out. So let's. My very first impression was that the illustration on the edition we got looks an awful lot. In composition, like the Silence of the Lamb movie poster. Oh, really? And uh, I don't yeah. know if that's just purely coincidental. <laughs> no, it, or she what does year look this like came? She's wearing that. Now that you the say moth. It. Oh yeah. my god! So yeah. looking at the year here, uh, like this novelization copyright '85. This says published '86, so it's not a knockoff no. of that poster. That's not what, at all. or something like that. No, it's it's a, it's a winged creature on a woman's face. Yeah, so. and well, it's meant to be. Well, you've got the crystal below. You've got the Chronos above, who's basically just this big white bird. Yeah. He looks gorgeous on the cover of that, uh -huh. and then Chronos is the woman at the very top, yeah. which I think is one of the most gorgeous cover images. And this story does not deserve it. <laughs> Andrew Skilder did a wonderful job with that painting and for yeah. this story, but I'm sorry. And now Alice, that's, every, that that's all I'm going to see now is yeah. <laughs> Cannibal Lecture. As well you should. It would probably improve the story to some degree. But getting back to the master, um, he's, yeah, he's not really delivering on this whole Moriarty to the doctor's homes, is he, really? Hmm. This doctor is still not that powerful at this juncture either, so I think he kind of is. They're both kind of, I don't know, mid-card. Oh, mid-card? Well, this... <laughs> Explain that a little bit, please. <laughs> not top billing. Uh, the Doctor is not all that all-powerful of a hero yet. And oh. the Master is not as scary as the Daleks, and they're somewhat evenly matched, it seems like. Neither one of them is that powerful compared <laughs> to what we'll see in the new series. That's true. They're powerful, but not unfathomably so we we haven't gotten to the, you know david Tennant levitating around like jesus oh, it, with the new master in that series with yeah. they're both extraordinarily powerful and i actually like that we're not there yet oh i i am i'm very happy we're not there yet because thinking about that story depresses me <laughs> oh god i don't think that's a terrible I, I don't think it's a terrible story oh, but that's it's... it was the first thing i saw the master in well that's true so i expected him to be much more powerful than he yeah. has been and i, I I kind of think of them as a couple of, you know, tenured academics, but they're low-level tenured, if that makes sense. <laughs> like, they're secure, but they're not... Oh, they're, assistant pro they're associate not, professors. They're not the most significant scholars in their field, but they have a tremendous rivalry and are committed <laughs> to destroying one another I can see that. professionally. Yeah. Uh, I can see that. Okay. So, Camille Paglia and everybody else. Is she committed to destroying people? 
well, <laughs> have you ever seen Camille Paglia speak? No. Oh, she wants to wants yeah. everybody to. I have actually just kind of a vague impression of her as a bomb thrower, which I guess goes along exactly with what you just said. Oh, yeah. Whenever she makes public appearances and you have undergrads, you know, asking her about certain things, she'll actually say, oh, shut up. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. You need to read up a little bit before you come and accuse me of something like that. And it's like, mm. that's the way she operates. Mm. Yeah. The only woman I have ever seen her kind of back down against was Ariana Huffington hmm. before the conversion. Hmm. Before Ariana decided, oh, conservatism is a mug's game. I'm going to be a liberal from now on. Hmm. How did we get there? I have no idea. <laughs> How's your coccyx feeling today, Tony? Oh, oh my yes. coccyx oh, my is just feeling terrific. I feel like we have height of Terrence Dick's humor and banter here in a way we that do. I actually quite enjoyed, including some quality dick jokes, <laughs> yes. such as that. <laughs> Yeah, we do. I mean, true, he's to some degree just transcribing. Mm. But yeah, that's that's much more Barry Letts coming in and um, making Mm. jokes of that sort. But yeah, Dix has no problem with those jokes, obviously. He isn't cutting them out. But it was wittier than he usually is and a greater density, so that makes Mm -hmm. sense. I agree. There, there are some cringe-worthy bits in the televised story that aren't on the page, thank goodness. Um, but there are also equally cringe-worthy bits that are. <laughs> so we certainly have some of that difficulty. Okay, so Also on that note, um, Stuart Hyde standing nervously brandishing his enormous spanner. I think the yes. other one I had in my collection of amusing dick jokes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Oh, um, it's age appropriate. That's true. Unfortunately, the child doesn't see it. They don't see it. They're we still get or... we still get the line simmer down stew, which uh, Paul Cornell oh, said is one of the worst oh. puns you, know, you could possibly get. If we're going to answer to that level of indiscretion, Paul Cornell would better be prepared to sit down and give account for some of his bad puns. Oh, I agree. I actually like Paul Cornell's bad puns, Mm -hmm. but um, I don't know. I'm calling the kettle black and all that. Oh, I know. I would take him to task for Time Worm Revelations right now. But But is he talking about the adaptation or the episode? He's talking about the episode. Which I haven't seen. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm imagining terrific delivery in my mind that I can see a lot of this falling flat on screen. Yeah, Mm. that's for true. Actually, it's kind of strange because um, Ruth is very likable on screen. Dix doesn't seem to care that much for her because when he renders her, she seems a bit, and I hate to use this word because you know where I'm going with it, she seems a bit shrill in that way that people accuse mid-century feminists of being. And it's like, yeah, she doesn't deserve that because she's not shrill at all Mm. in the televised version. That makes sense. Because I, um, I thought when I was reading this, this was Dick's script, and that he had created a character he didn't quite know what to do with. Uh-huh. That he had this strong woman concept, and he didn't. I mean, he just you know kept fumbling the balls. So that makes sense if he's adapting someone else's yeah. character. Yeah, he is. He is. This is Robert Sloman, and with with Barry Letts thrown in. So I think the most infamous scene on that is, oh goodness, the one about why are men so spineless. Oh, God, yeah. Which is the sort of thing second wave feminists are 
very frequently accused of saying is just like a regular every other paragraph part of speech, but it's right. extremely rare it is. to actually hear, hear in that. the wild. Mm -hmm. And that whole conversation seemed kind of weird and off between those two people. Yeah. It seemed like something she might say to the master, not yet knowing who he was when he was just the professor. Right. Who did she? She says it to Stu, doesn't she? Yeah, she, she? said it to Stu. Yeah, he seems to be her whipping boy for a lot of this. They have a weird relationship that vacillates between some sort of mutual respect and affection and yeah. a couple that actually hates each other fighting <laughs> yeah. in yes. a way that... Some weird sadomasochistic... Yeah. Individual scenes worked, but strung together, they didn't yeah. quite add up to a livable relationship. Let me see if I can find that scene. It's got some, some very funny things in it and then some very weird off things. Uh, well, while you're doing that, I'd say you're absolutely right. And it differs greatly from what's on screen because those actors have wonderful chemistry as like an older sister, younger sibling type. And that's yeah. what I was yeah. imagining at the beginning. He swung around on her. And don't you start. You'd be the first to clobber me if I mucked it up. <laughs> well, you could at least have a go, she said indignantly. Oh, why are men so spineless? I think it would make sense for her to say, why are you so spineless? Yeah, but right. because it, that's it, kind of what she means. Yeah, but she's been complaining about sexism before, so it seems like Terrence Dick's saying, oh, you do it too, ladies. Uh -huh. When the, there's nothing that's led up to this point that would lead you to believe that would be the kind of thing she would say. Yeah, I'm reminded of Isabel Watkins in The uh, Invasion saying, oh, you man. It's yes. like, oh, that's terrible. That's the, man. the best you got. But yeah. then his, his retort is delightful. Look, Levy, I'm not man. I'm, I'm, I'm not men. I'm Stuart Hyde, registered, card-carrying, fully paid-up coward. <laughs> yes. Benton and Roos didn't answer. They just looked at him, which is how yes. I feel whenever a couple bickers in front of me. I don't know what to say or do, and I really wish they'd stop. Yes, and that scene is actually really great on screen because you cut to her looking at him with disappointment, and he says, oh, don't give me that look, and you realize they've got more of a depth of relationship mm -hmm. to them, whereas here Benton is kind of pulled into it a little bit even though he has pulled into it obviously he's de-aged in the story and then he appears naked at the very end yes. wow, wow. He, what oh. are they called the improvised nipple? it's like from here mm. up yeah so you we don't even get to see your nipples john yeah it's <laughs> kind of a shame really we see we get to see his back but that's it it's not even it's not even captain jack and mm. uh the end of the first season of Doctor Who. Yeah, because we are talking 1970. Um, no, no bum. After all, yeah, no bum. No. no bum. No bum. Speaking of characters of feminism, there's the idea that any joke about a woman is automatically condemned as misogynistic. And I found mm. this one actually very funny. Did you really? <laughs> Excuse me. No, this one uh, that I'm about to read. With the unwieldy dignity of a drunken dowager, the TARDIS was streaming <laughs> yes. and I thought that was very funny <laughs> because I was specifically thinking of I think Maggie Smith maybe yes. in one of her more recent characters oh I always think Maggie Smith could dignity. have played the TARDIS yes. <laughs> yeah. if she were uh, if she were personalized yet again <laughs> come to think of it Remember when in the um, in the Neil Gaiman script when the TARDIS takes on female form, mm -hmm. she does have this kind of Victorian lace outfit mm -hmm. on, sure. and it's like, oh, okay. It, she reminded me of a sort of cut-rate Helena Bonham Carter. Yes, but that's how they were going with in terms of the stylization. That was exactly wow. it, and especially. But then they couldn't afford her. Yeah, and so you get one of the best lines ever. Without her hairdresser. Yeah. <laughs> Biting is just like kissing, but with a winner. 
<laughs> I did not remember that. Oh, it's a brilliant line. <laughs> I do remember that line. That's good. Uh, um, I actually really enjoyed a lot of the banter and humor in this, but mm-hmm. now I'm wondering if that was all Barry Letts to Terrence did. I'm certain it was. Okay. Yeah, there's... There's some things that Terrence Dix actually adds here, and Dalton knows one of them, because you referenced it earlier. But you had a point you were wanting to make before. You oh, went. I was just. Uh, we're, we're talking about the TARDIS having personality. I feel like this is one of the first times we really, you know, they talk about the TARDIS being uh, telepathic. Yes. Um, and and Joe, even uh, when the Doctor mentions kind of the TARDIS being alive, Ooh, yeah. and she questions that, and the Doctor's like, well, what do you mean? Yeah, duh. <laughs> like, um, and and from, from my memory, this is kind of one of the first times we really get kind of an idea that the TARDIS is something more than just a piece of machinery. It really is. Well... Yes, no. It's kind of been hinted at here and there, but I feel like this is one of the most overt kind of. You're right. Because the first time we ever got that was Edge of Destruction, remember? Where the ship was actively trying to Mm -hmm. warn them that they were in Mm -hmm. danger. And uh, Russell T. Davis said that that was a direct inspiration for the story Boomtown, where we find out the TARDIS is indeed sentient. Or more sentient. (coughs) Sorry. More sentient than we thought, and probably has better. Banners, fun. With no well, proof that you're sentient. Yeah, not at all. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly it. It is the first time we find out about any sort of telepathic circuits, and we mm-hmm. find out that's how TARDIS is communicated. It's not via wireless. Yeah. It's not subspace. It's because they're telepathically communicating, and you get wonderful scenes like the master figuring out what the doctor's going to say before he says it and feeding it back to him <laughs> <Yes>. backwards. <laughs> backwards. <laughs> and it's literally backwards on the page, whereas John Pertwee is just doing kind of this, you know, backwards Beatles yeah. record sounding mm-hmm. thing. Gotcha. It's so, not actually. So it's not thing. being played backwards. He's pronouncing He's it. pronouncing it. Yeah. 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 Which is hilarious because he does it quite well. You know what? You know what? You know what? I'm sorry, Doctor. What was that again? All the low underhanded tricks. What language was that? English. English? Yes, but backwards. I just don't get it. He's picking up my words even before I've spoken them and feeding them back to me through the TARDIS's telepathic circuits, making them come out backwards. But it's not backwards. Oh, yeah, so we got a TARDIS that we've seen. This is probably the most we've seen of the TARDIS in the Pertwee era. We haven't spent this much time in Mm -hmm. his TARDIS. We've spent this much time in the Master's TARDIS when we did, um, um, fuck it. When we did, um, I want to say Colony in Space, but it's uh, the Doomsday Weapon, yes. <laughs> Why do I always remember that in Dutch first? Yeah. I don't know. It's so weird. You're, an, you're a very well-educated man. <laughs> no, I'm not. Okay, so, Atlantis. We're back in Atlantis. We're here. What the fuck? <laughs> there is no reference to the previous trip. It's as if they simply wanted f- to forget that the underwater menace ever happened oh maybe maybe that's exactly what they wanted to happen because it doesn't exist in the archives of as of this point maybe i don't know i mean maybe there's more freedom when it's not an original concept you know Mm -hmm. 
you have the de- the devil be a character in yeah. your program, Atlantis. Yeah. It's public domain, has been for a very long time now. So maybe they don't feel the responsive. This is kind of a nebulous they. Mm-hmm. The writers on this and producer, producers at this point don't feel a responsibility to continue continuity. There are already a lot of different yeah, right. the story of Atlantis. So but also, it could be a different timeline. It could be a different reality. That's it true. could be a different whatever. Because we're not talking about chronovore. So obviously the doorways of time have been ripped apart somehow. Yeah. And we have this story happening after the events of the demon, so it could be very well be that Azal was the original destroyer of Atlantis, and now Kronos is, and God only knows how Zeroth's Atlantis got where it was. How many years ago were the survivors of Atlantis living inside a volcano? In season years? Oh, right. Um, Underwater Menace was season four? Yeah, it was Trouton's first season. So it was years earlier in an era before people were recording this on VHS or seeing it re-aired. I think they just... My guess would be they decided to pretend it didn't happen. <laughs> that might be it. It would be literally just a memory in yeah. the minds of the fans of several years earlier. That's so. true. And Terrence Dix wasn't script editing yet, so he wouldn't have been all that invested. Yeah. Someone's worried about continuity. Complain about no. immediately. What in the world is this continuity defying garbage? I wonder, though, because by this point... Especially, so why not? Well, by this point, the Doctor Who Appreciation Society had been formed. Okay. So we finally get a very, very vocal fandom. So they're in danger of receiving a very strongly worded missive from the Doctor Who Appreciation Society. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I can see rolling the dice on that one. Yeah, yeah. that's true. But again, like we haven't established any kind of ideas about set points in time no. so much. No. Um, so yeah, this could just be an alternate version of Atlantis that this is happening to. That's true. This one's... Um, ruled by Rita Hayworth, it seems like. Actually, interesting story about her. Um, Ingrid Pitt <laughs> is the actress who plays Galea, and she is best known as basically a Hammer Horror Queen <laughs> because she had done several Hammer Horror movies, including one with John Pertwee made the year before this called The House That Dripped Blood, Ooh. in which they both played vampires. Vampires. Is she, she purr in that one? Oh as well? God, yeah. Oh God, hmm. Ingrid. Ingrid Pitt is one of those women that could turn even someone like me straight. I mean, it's like Jesus of her God. Is very She's pleasingly, amusingly voluptuous. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like I imagined her as a terrific camp queen. Yeah, she's basically a substitute Brit Eklund mm. uh, to some degree. Um, in fact, the House of Drip Blood I just rewatched the other night, and John Pertwee. House is playing somebody dirt like blood? a huh? House of Dirt Blood? No, no, drip, no. The dripped. The, the dripped. Oh, okay. Dripped. Okay. Dripped. Drip, drip. I couldn't get blood out of the turnip, so dripped I got some out of the dripped dirt. Dripped. Dripped. Okay. Okay. Dripped. The House of Dripped Blood. Um, and he's playing kind of a um, uh, pastiche of a Vincent Price character who's always in vampire films. And they have him dressed in a jacket and a frilled shirt. And it's basically his Doctor Who costume. I was going to say, it's It's like, we might as well cash in on this while we can. Ingrid Pitt is pretty good in this. She's not as good as she is in The House That Dripped Blood. Her return to the show in 1984 is less impressive when we get the Silurians and the Sea Devils back and she goes out by, I'm not even telling you. 
I'm not even going to tell you. Uh-huh. You're just going to have to read the book and uh, suffer with the rest no, of us. No, we're curious. Well, that's fine. Continue to be curious. She definitely seems like the sort of person that could seduce hippie ass. <laughs> hippie ass. I know uh, it's hippie ass, but hippie ass. Yeah. Hippie ass, yeah. I, I hate that character. Patchouli. Yeah. What, what do we think of hippie ass? Uh, I don't. <laughs> well, we're back to the classic slate of Terrence Dick's written supporting cast, where they're not terrible, they're very mm-hmm. thin, and that's perfectly fine for a story like this, but I cannot remember one from the other later on. Yeah. Because there's not much to Hippias. There's not much at all. In fact, he's well, kind he's, of changeable. He's just kind of fodder for the master and uh, the priest whose name has left my mind at this moment. Uh, uh, yeah. To just kind of use to... Curious. Oh. Uh, cr- Cratius. Cratius. Yes. Goodness gracious. Goodness gracious. Or Crassus. Either way, yeah. He's kind of just like fodder for the two of them to use for their evil scheming back when they're on Atlantis. That's all it is. And I don't necessarily think that when I'm reading the scenes, oh, this character is completely forgettable. They function perfectly decently within the scenes. Right. It's just as soon as the scene has changed, you forget who they are. So you read the name again. Who is that functionary again? There are always a lot of functionaries around. Yeah, Yeah. and I I never much cared for Hippias anyway, because on screen he's played by this very monotone actor who, he makes Sam Neill look dynamic. He's really just kind of flat. And the problem here that I see on the page is that that character is not consistent. The first time we see him, he's talking with the king. He's saying what's going to happen. He seems like a trusted confidant. Yeah. Then he turns out to be the side hoe of the queen. And he's <laughs> upset about that. And then he ends up um, challenging. Not even, not even the hoe in chief. Not even the hoe in chief, because he used to be. And then he ends up challenging the king. And then that's the last we hear of him. And it's like, okay, why... He Why have one character? I'm sorry, what? He got out while the getting was good. I guess so. Well, no, he ended up in the the maze. Oh, wait, that's right. But he ends up getting killed, killed. in the maze really quick. Right. But it's like, yeah. And he, not even a way that really redeems him as a character. No, his whole arc is just, yeah, he's just kind of the yeah. character that's there to do whatever they need to, yeah. to fill in for. I think his dying to save Joe is meant to be redemptive, but it just doesn't work because there's not enough really for us no. to care about yeah. for him to be redeemed. It's like almost the the first scene with him with the king is a way for them to explain to the reader and the viewer about the crystal still existing, the main part of the crystal still being there. Yes. It's just a it's a MacGuffin. It's just like, okay, here's the mm-hmm. character we need someone to talk to to explain yes. that this crystal is still here. The plot was so intricate yet disjointed that I actually found that more palatable than if it had been somewhat disjointed. Mm. Like, stuff just happened. There are literally, like, people <laughs> flying in from other times and places, you know, the night charging down the road, yeah. what I call them, the doodle buds, etc. It's interesting that everyone and everything that leaks in from the past is a weapon or a, yes. or, or a soldier. Um, well, that's the master's doing with the time scoop. Suddenly the time there scoop. are people from Atlantis. I'm not sure if they are from the past or there's a current Atlantis <laughs> somewhere. So I just let it all wash over me and it was fine. It was all very much like I um, complain about uh, what's-his-face, the coupling guy. And um, we wrote Silence in the Library and then got the showrunner gig. Oh, right, right. Uh, Stephen Moffat. Yes. I cannot believe I forgot his name. I can't um, believe it took me a while to recall it. Maybe it's know, because I, I blocked it. I accuse him in, in 
many of his episodes of creating a lot of flash bang spectacle and yes. the impression that you just saw something very smart and very clever exactly. but when you try to go over in your mind the mechanics of what just happened it's not there's a hole in the plot it's more like there's a series of semi-related events where he just doesn't bother telling you how one thing connects to another and it's not terrible it's just mm -hmm. not the clever thing he has created that's what i got here and I that's exactly it but i didn't mind it okay particularly. it was so disjointed that's not a bad thing to do just mm -hmm. you can't then say that you did something very clever i think you would mm -hmm. mind it a lot more if you sat through all six episodes because this is a six-parter I mean, it did have a certain certain, certain fun, over-the-top relentlessness. Sorry, Who knows what's okay. going to happen. Magic. Wally! It just restarted on its own. That's okay. It happens. Me. That's all right. It's the, it's the um, time monster. It's Kronos yeah. telling us about the time. But yeah, that's, that's basically it. If you were to watch the episode, it's, well, it's really was... harder to ignore the difficulties. Well, then, and the very last page we're told... Well, that all happened you know, 1,500 years in the past, or 3,500, and mm -hmm. I wasn't sure which part of the story he was referring to, and uh, I also did not care. Yeah. Because at some point we went from unit driving around, and we're definitely in the present era, and things are leaking in from another, to certain things happened thousands of years ago, and I'm not sure when and what part, but... Instead of being frustrated, it's like, oh yeah, sure, why not? Right, because right. Because I did think he gave a good... He painted a good picture of the concentric circles of a distortion. Yes. And the idea that where the scientists are working around the machine, things seem normal outside. Yeah. People Standing are, under a fountain, you don't get wet. Yes. People are floating through the air. Things mm -hmm. are things are, are pouring in from, from various portals, etc. Mm -hmm. So I thought he created a good atmosphere of chaos wherein oh, yeah. mm -hmm. I just accepted one thing after another. Now, speaking of that... That's where Dix is, is contributing. Because when the doctor says, when you stand under a fountain, do you get wet? Ruth's immediate thought is to think, that doesn't make any sense, but she didn't say anything about it. Right. And that's uh. precisely what the audience is thinking when they hear that. Or when he makes his uh, thing, thing maduget. Oh, when he's running around the kitchen, just yes, grabbing tea leaves. random... And it oh it's worse than it sounds. On, <laughs> oh God, it's worse than it sounds on on um, the screen because he's having to turn it and there's this little bulb light. It does sound amusingly random and frenetic. It, it is that. Seem it is that. Like it could be fun. Yeah, but even I think there's something about the way Dix describes it that's like yes, this is ridiculous. Even the brigadier is is put off by it. Oh, it doesn't work. You astound me. <laughs> one of the best deliveries for the brigadier the brigadier seems a little stupider all of a sudden doesn't he well we have the mm. problem that recurs when you have someone like that who's the perennial straight man and skeptic who as your serial story progresses has seen a lot of stuff go down and he shouldn't be that easy to shock anymore no and he shouldn't be so disbelieving surely you didn't see that wild thing when he's seen so many wild things yeah yeah, I agree. I agree. There should be a lot. He shouldn't be thinking that Mike Yates is drunk. I actually no. did enjoy the banter. There. <laughs> Are you drink? drunk? Are no, you but drink now that you I... mention it, I really. I could really use a break. Use one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the least objectionable uses of Mike Yates so far. That's true. Not that he's usually bad. He's just usually just kind of there. 
<laughs> you were talking about banter, and there are actually, you're right, there are some lovely bits of banter, especially between the Doctor and Joe. One of them was not in the script. In fact, let me find it again. It's at the beginning of Chapter 3, when Joe's complaining about the weather, and she's like, look at that sky, just look at it. That's not a scripted line. That's Katie Manning forgetting that they were being filmed. <laughs> and she's riding in the car with John Pertwee. And it's being filmed and she's, you know, just bitching about the sky. And he answers her in character and gets them back into the script. So that's Katie Manning basically you know, making a disparaging comment about the weather, which they kept in the Talbot oh. story. And it's now in the novelization, which is just lovely. I love like that. The infamous story that may or may not be apocryphal of the um, one of the writers from the first Blade movie seeing um, Wesley, oh, Snipes. Wesley Snipes Wesley Snipes in the Blade costume making a phone call and supposedly on his phone call he said always some motherfucker trying to ice skate uphill and that became the <laughs> climax of the movie was just him in costume having his usual personal conversation oh, wow. it was just so good that it's not just in there it's yeah. it's the the that culmination is, that is <laughs> so. hilarious that is hilarious we get john pertwee's signature line reverse the player of the the neutron flow which now Dalton has heard twice because they mm-hmm. repeat it in Five yeah. Doctors. The Brigadier basically is here for comic relief more than anything. Benton is here both for comic relief and to do something, which is just bizarre. But yeah, the fact that the Doctor and Joe have gotten so comfortable with each other that he says, you stay here, Joe. And she says, no, I'm coming with you. Oh, really? Okay, well, let's go. Yes, and I thought that was a good development, but now I'm concerned that the next book we're going to be back to her saying, I'm coming, and him saying, there, no. there, little flower. Run well, along. he there, won't there, say there, that, <laughs> but he will Child. try to discourage well, her. Almost daughter. literally patting her on the head. Yeah we, yeah, we won't get quite back to that again. Well, because we, in the last couple of stories, or maybe it's two of the last three stories, have seen him being extremely condescending to her. This is true. Yeah. This is true. And this seemed like a good development, but we've had this development before. Yeah. Well, Two remem- steps forward, one step back. Exactly. Well, remember how Doctor Who operates at this point. That you do have a script editor and you have a producer, and they're trying to merge this into one long narrative, but not in the way that modern Doctor Who is merged into one mm-hmm. long narrative, where they're very careful to make sure that they don't contradict something in the past and as soon as those words came out of my mouth I had like three or four different examples pop in my head something but tell me what about this and it's like yeah well, just don't talk to me about that bring that through I think three different parts you know he says well like we're going to do this it's like we eh like, oh, yeah, I'm going. <laughs> well I guess I won't stop you but then yeah. later we have uh, glad to have you aboard Miss Grant said the doctor solemnly Joe gave a mock salute glad to be aboard doctor but in the very <laughs> last page something Oh, yeah, Something about getting out of that ridiculous get-up. Comes back around. Well, I remember thinking that she had developed a sense of the consequences of time travel, finally. Yes. And this okay. is the first time that she's ever faced a moment where the choice was between her life and the universe, and she chooses the universe, mm-hmm. which is like, okay, this character has has come through at all. Yeah. she's She sees the bigger she, picture. Yeah. 
So the opposite of what I just complained about the premiere, yes. he seems, you know, kind of thick skull and not to have learned much from what he's seen. And she yeah. seems to have learned from what she's seen. Exactly. But I'm afraid they're going to reset that again. Not quite. Next season is going to be a very, if I remember correctly, next season's going to be a very Joe-friendly season. <laughs> and the uh, novelizations are just as much there. Yeah. But you're right, the Brigadier is going to devolve a little bit. In fact, in the Three Doctors, it's really quite embarrassing how much he devolves. When compared to the Five Doctors, where he's just like, oh yeah, this again. (laughs) Yeah, but I had a a feeling, watching that, that that was partially because he had been so removed from a lot of the action, it seemed. Partially. Um, Mm -hmm. So kind of getting back into it was maybe uh, refreshing to him. Oh yeah, because he has been retired for some time. But yeah, um, do, doing our Joe check, um, as, yes, as, as we like to do. Check. We have not done um, the Joe check for a while. I, I do feel like she had a lot more to do in this one. And she, yeah, like we were just saying, she really seems to have kind of come into her own mm-hmm. um, in, in dealing with, with space and time and kind of really seeing the bigger picture. And like you said, she kind of makes the ultimate sacrifice to, well, yeah. to give herself up to, to do the the right thing yeah well twice even she tells the master after she thinks the doctor's died he's going to send her off into the time vortex and she says just do it yeah i don't care just do it that's like whoa (laughs) dick's gonna dicks because we also have one or two instances here of she looks like she was going to burst into tears and now i wonder if yeah the writers are sort of fighting one another that the screenplay gives her this development and Dix is kind of undoing a little yeah, bit so of it. Yeah, it has to counter it a bit. Yeah, yeah because... Has, has to, because the force is in his own mind, not any out, yeah, actual yeah. outside demand. Because we have talked about the fact that he's woke, but he's woke for 1973. Right. And that's not nearly woke enough. But even, um, you know, when they're in Atlantis and she's trying to go warn the doctor and the king about the scheme and, you know, she can't get through, she's like, oh... Screw this! And she she just runs after Cratius and and goes down to to the labyrinth herself. Yes, um, you know, putting herself, herself in trouble, but into danger. You know, ultimately, but you know, she was at least trying to 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 do what she could mm-hmm. to make things right, to stop them, to you know, to put herself between them and the crystal. Yes. Um, so yeah, she's she's really. Instead of just being the damsel in distress, even though they dressed her up like, you know, one, uh, <laughs> yes. she, she proves not to kind of fall into that trap. Yes. Interesting line here. I am Kronos at the face. You said you're in amazement, but you're a girl. <laughs> <laughs> then, I love the response. Shapes mean nothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which Absolutely makes sense true. for Kronos, for, oh, yeah. for what Kronos is supposed to be. And I can't remember who played the face of Kronos. It might have been Ingrid Pitt, but I'm not, I don't, I don't think that's true and i don't think that's dick's being actually especially deep at all about gender i think he just means that chronos is this other kind of being Mm -hmm. but it still has a nice musicality it does speaking of musicality and beautiful scenes we have to talk about the doctor reminiscing about his time on gallifrey which has not been named yet in the series but it has been named in the books by now yeah, we have to talk about that because that's the scene that's going to um, come back again where he's... Um, what exactly is the setup there? They are imprisoned, is that right? Mm. Together, is that correct? 
while you're looking for that, one thing that does seem to be entirely dicks is it's in parentheses. He really likes parentheses. He loves book. those parentheticals. The master was handcuffing Joe to the console of his TARDIS and in parentheses. Just like the master to have built-in fittings for prisoners, not Joe. <laughs> <laughs> but she's been in there before, so she should know that. So but she wasn't cuffed. That's true. She wasn't to cuffed. To any of the furniture. Time. It's or like, of course he's got handcuffs. Yeah. It's chapter... Of course, he has built-in. He's built into the walls, yeah. Chapter 14, Thank Captives. That's um, it. For me, it's like page 117-ish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where he talks about going to see the monk who lives um, on the, higher up on the mountain where his family had a house. Mm-hmm. Any luck? Funnily enough, they didn't include Atlantean chains in my eschatology course. No. It's no good. Doctor, what are we going to do? We'll just have to play it by ear, won't we? What happens if the Master wins? Well, the whole of creation is very delicately balanced in cosmic terms, Joe. If the Master opens the floodgates of Kronos's power, all order and all structure will be swept away. Nothing will be left but chaos. Makes it seem sort of pointless, really, doesn't it? I felt like that once when I was young. It was the blackest day of my life. Why? Ah, well, that's another story. I'll tell you about it one day. The point is that day was not only my blackest, it was also my best. What do you mean? Well, when I was a little boy, we used to live in a house that was perched halfway up the top of a mountain. And behind our house, there sat under a tree an old man, a hermit, a monk. He lived under this tree for half his lifetime, so they said, and he learned the secret of life. So, when my black day came, I went and asked him to help me. He told you the secret? And what was it? Well, I'm coming to that, Joe, in my own time. Ah, I'll never forget what it was like up there. All bleak and cold bare rocks with some weeds sprouting from them and some pathetic little patches of sludgy snow yes, it was just gray 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 well the tree the old man sat under that was ancient and twisted and the old man himself was he was as brittle and dry as a leaf in the autumn what did he say nothing not a word he just sat there silently expressionless and he listened whilst i poured out my troubles to him too unhappy even for tears, I remember. When I'd finished, he lifted a skeletal hand and he pointed. Do you know what he pointed at? No. A flower. One of those little weeds. Just like a daisy it was. Well, I looked at it for a moment and suddenly I saw it through his eyes. It was simply glowing with life. Like a perfectly cut jewel. And the colors colors were deeper and richer than anything you can possibly imagine. Yes, that was the daisiest daisy I'd ever seen. That was the secret of life. A daisy? <laughs> Honestly, Doctor. Yes, I laughed too when I first heard it. So later I got up and I ran down that mountain and I found that the rocks weren't grey at all. They were red and brown and purple and gold those pathetic little patches of sludgy snow 
They were shining white, shining white in the sunlight. You still frightened, Joe? No, not as much as I was. That's good. And the new series has tried to kind of fiddle with that a little bit. I mean, we don't see a mountain, but we do see that the Doctor used to live in a very rustic house when okay. he was a child. It's going to get revisited in Pertwee's last story, which is beautiful. Not the story, but the revisitation. And the interesting thing about this is, later on, we're going to get to a fan novelization before we get to the official BBC novelization. The fan novelization is going to recreate that scene with a very young Hartnell doctor. And it's just brilliant. But yeah, and it's the first time, I believe, and you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong on this, and you, of course, will correct me if I'm wrong on this too. It's the first time the doctor will apologize to a companion for getting him in danger. That's, I finally found the scene I was looking for. It's yeah. the third touching on whether or not Joe's going to come. Yeah. Um, are you still frightened, Joe? Not as much as I was. I'm sorry I brought you here. I'm not. Thank you, said the doctor quietly. Yeah. Which is actually the perfect balance of he has to let the companions grow up and as they develop a sense of risk management, to use a more technical term, decide mm-hmm. what risks they want to take. Yes. Yeah. But he's still in charge and he's still responsible. He still has a duty of care. I think yes. that's the phrase we use nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, and which the doctor, will, the 12th doctor will use in relation to um, uh, Clara. I don't think it would have been possible before for him to take her seriously enough that he would allow himself to be comforted by her saying, I'm not sorry that I'm here. I don't think before he saw her as as enough of an individual that he would give any weight to her thoughts on him. It's taken a while, but he's he's finally gotten used to Joe Grant, I think. Because, as you said, she's very various at times. But <laughs> we're getting to that point where she's lock- their character is locking in. Now, of course, next season, a few, there'll still be a few bits. But her best, her best acts are yet to come, that's for sure. Mm. Um, I love that scene to pieces. It's in a terrible story <laughs> overall because, as you said, the story's all over the place, but I do love that scene to pieces. Anytime you have the Doctor interacting with a companion, not as a foil and not as a narrative device and not as someone who's in distress that he has to save, but as somebody he's chosen to travel with and his actions have led to them being in danger and he feels guilt over that. We're only going to see that happen. Jesus. The Tom Baker doctor will do it, but the companion in question will be unconscious at, the, at that moment. The fifth doctor will do it in his very last story, and he means it because his actions lead to that companion almost dying. Hmm. And that's it. I can't think of any other instances. Except for the Tenth Doctor constantly saying, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. So it becomes a trope, but that's more the case of, I'm really sorry that the universe sucks this much for you. Not, I'm really sorry that I did this to you. Yeah. Because, if anything, by the time we get to the Tenth Doctor, he's the universe sucking. He's the one doing the terrible things. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself a bit here. (laughs) I'm just saying how much I love this particular scene. Well, it... 
There is actually quite decent character development for the Doctor and Joe through what feels like they're running through a series of disjointed scenes. Yes. So there's some lovely banter for several people and good character development for, for our two regulars here. Well, there's not very good for our supporting cast, but yeah. we'll live with a wooden brigadier we have before, <laughs> yes. and we will again. Um, but speaking of foiled, uh, I like the insult for the master. <laughs> Astounded, the master stared at them, literally speechless with fury. Can't think of a thing to say, asked the doctor. How very embarrassing. How about curses? Foiled again, suggested Joe. Like, which I might, my mind, of course, I hear is coices. <laughs> she said it that way. Coices. Foiled again. And then later, well, if you can call it that, alive forever in an eternity of nothingness, the master chuckled. To coin a phrase, a living death. That's the most cruel, the most wicked thing I ever heard. Well, thank you, my dear, said the master, modestly accepting what he saw as a compliment. Now, what about you, Miss Grant? <laughs> And, and later on when they do the time ram, which is a bizarre concept. We're not even going to get into that. Um, it just sounds dirty. Time ram. <laughs> yes. We get, we get the Joe saying, oh, I'm fine. We're dead, of course, but I'm fine. Yeah. I like We're that, dead. yes. <laughs> It's dead pan humor. Dead pal. <laughs> At least they're dead I see together. What you did there, yes. Dead and loving it. Another amusing banter. What's a thrashkin? Well, it's you know, it's, it's a, a, a favorite term for a plinch. What's a plinch? I already told you. It means <laughs> thrashkin. <laughs> so these are <laughs> these are very light snacks, but I, I they're mm. salty and I enjoy them. Yeah, it's kind of like the Chex mix of a Doctor Who story. It's not no, terribly I really filling. I love Chex mix a lot. Yeah, but you don't it's get not, filled on it. This is more like bugles. Oh, yeah. okay. I, I can eat I can eat bugles, <laughs> but you're right. A little goes a long way. And six episodes of this, it gets wearing. <laughs> I did imagine that the special effects were probably horrible. They were. Yeah. The Minotaur should have been better. Though I think it interesting that Dalius apparently is so old that he's a contemporary of the Minotaur. Mm-hmm. And at some they point... They school together. Yes, and some point after he got transformed, Dalius and the Minotaur must have had a conversation. Because he says at some point in chapter 13, he was like... Yes, he's sworn never to allow anybody near the crystal after his uh, after his transformation. It's like, did he talk with Dalios about this? I mean, whenever they go down there to, to look at the crystal in the first place, he kind of... He's, he's like, it's just me. It's just me. Don't Go back to sleep. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Everything's fine. I'm just here showing this this youngster yeah. that we still got the crystal. It's like telling that really, really scared downstairs neighbor, oh, it's fine. We're just passing through. <laughs> Don't worry. We're no. fine. Just having a cigarette. Don't worry. Dalios has some amusing, speaking of salty, some amusing salty lines. Very elementary technique of fascination. I am too old a fish, too old in years and in the sacred mysteries to be caught in such a net, which I'm definitely going to be using at work in the near future. I'm too (laughs) old a fish to be caught in such a net. But you saw me descend from the skies, protested the master. Dalios chuckled. Tell me then, what of Great Poseidon? What did he have for breakfast? Fish, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) I know, and yeah. that actor doesn't get nearly enough to do in this story. He's just there, and then he's gone. I was kind of pissed off that they killed him. Yeah, which is weird because they kill him off right after he said, "How dare you hand uh, hand me uh, uh, hand uh, yeah. How dare you lay hands on me this way?" And it's yeah. like, it's, how did you die right after that? Very dark for this story. Oh God, yeah, yeah. especially 
And this is Dix. This is all Dix. The understated way he dies. Yeah. But by then, Dalios couldn't hear it. Missed. Yeah. Yeah. But by then, Dalios could not hear the words or something like that. It's so, like, oh, that's lovely. And it ends a chapter. It's like, okay, that's where Terrence Dix is doing something just amazing with something incredibly silly. I mean, the story can be very silly. And then, yeah, don't let's talk about it. Let's the time um, scoop. Let's bring we're getting, Allison we're in on scooped. this. Uh, yeah. Every time I hear it, I think of just like a giant ice cream scoop. Just <laughs> is, it, is, it just like, chucking, is it related to their time around? Chucking well, people. Well, here's the thing. Um, in Chapter 9, the Master likens Tom Tit to the time scoop that the Time Lords used. In the dark days. That Rassilon has yes. forbidden. Or... Now, we know nothing of all of this in 1972. Or are we in 73? 72. 72. We do in 1986 because by then, Terrence Dix has written The Five Doctors, uh-huh. the 20th anniversary story in 1983, which involves Time Lords and the Time Scoop and pulling people out of time. So this is Terrence Dix saying... If you enjoyed this story, remember I wrote this one later on, and that novelization is still out there. Pretty, pretty in, restrained for marketing, though. It is a bit. It's much. It's much better than say those asterisk C Doctor C, Who of the K Monsters on sale near you. I guess my question: one, does he do the same thing in the televised story? Does he pull? Does he pull people from? Yeah, Tom Tit does that. So Tom Tit does that. But Terrence Dix is inputting. He he he's basically throwing in time scoop as, yeah. as a reference to his own thing. Yeah. Okay. He is. And and also I think trying to give a reading audience in 1986 who may not have seen the story an analog to what's okay. going on. So you're not thinking so much. Ooh, this is a time a Tom Titty thing. It is instead. Yeah, this pornography sounds terrible. Time <laughs> Ram, starring Tom Tit. <laughs> uh, no, oh no, thank you. No thanks. Tom Tit and TT Boy. Mm. Oh, good God. And I'm not kidding. That's actually the name of a porn actor. There, well. there are some amusing things with uh, foreshadowing here, mm-hmm. wherein um, the doctor says, you know. The, the Minoans is in the Minotaur, and then 50 pages later we have a Minotaur. Uh, but the one that I did not see coming is the um, Brigadier says, I feel as naked as a baby in its bath. Light and heavy machine guns, and uh, shove a yes. couple of any tank guns <laughs> in the boot, will you? <laughs> Mike, you, you have tanks there? I don't know. <laughs> Literal, sorry, little did we know that a few uh, dozen pages later we would see a grown man who was also a naked baby and I did not yes. see that coming. Uh-huh. I did think when he first mentioned a minotaur I bet we're going to see a minotaur. Now, but I, did not. I don't know if that's Dick's or whether it's the original script because again, once again, I haven't watched the story, rewatched the story for this one because I'm a little busy with my own life. But um, yeah, I haven't rewatched the story. <laughs> who uh, did you just sorry. subtweet? I know, and I probably should. I should probably go look at it and then cut that in later. But yeah, I'm going to be cutting out the burp instead. Sorry about that. I'm doing it again. Oh, by the way, Allison, chapter 12. Mm -hmm. How did you like the fact that instead of Big Black... Dix gives us giant I Nubian. I did have a, screen, a screenshot <laughs> yes, of that. Finally, he learned to say something other than giant black man. <laughs> he said giant Nubian, yes. which is a modest 
but notable improvement. He could not restrain himself from a, a size <laughs> yes. signifier, though. The only thing... It, I, it, I bet it did not see the, the cast, oh, yeah. so maybe they oh, are well, no. giant well, men. No. When I saw that phrase, it made me think of that scene in the first season of Rome where someone is giving a gift of a Nubian slave to somebody else, but he's got basically a basket of fruit or whatever, and this gigantic dong, which is hanging over the fruit. And, of course, the person giving the gift is like, yes, she'll definitely appreciate this. Oh, my it's God. Like, Fucking hell. It's like, it's like an old episode of uh, National Geographic. It's like, we can't show you these titties, but we can show you these. It's like, oh, dear Lord. Also, I'm just thinking about, like, the logistics of what they're suggesting that the guy is told, all right, you're going to be given as a gift. Be super excited by fruit on command in well, this stressful he's, situation. he's not erect. He's what? not erect. Mm. I mean, he is a shower, not a grower. Mm. It's long from the start. Ahem. I have not seen it. <laughs> yes, all you need to do, I think, is just... Do Rome, HBO, slave, gift, and then You'll do find an many image search. Have found it memorable. Oh, oh God! Oh. Have lots of screenshots. Yeah, I think I've I've got that saved on the computer <clears throat> somewhere mm. just for um, you know. Which I know it's supposed to be research purposes. Uh, a gag of sorts, but it... oh, it's it's very dehumanizing. Yeah, you know? I would say it's. But that's the way the Romans thought too. But this is something that's persisted into present American anti-blackness is the first thing I thought, kind of thing I thought about when Terry Crews told the story of being uh, grabbed in the crotch by that producer oh, at that event yes. was the guy grabbing him for all I thought, oh, let's see if the stereotype is true yeah. and wasn't processing this is a human being at a professional event Yes. here with his wife, with mm-hmm. his partner, just to, just... His curiosity was such, it didn't yes. even occur to him that a person wouldn't want their genitals grabbed by a stranger yes. in public. That is and I'm thinking about the, N- uh, the NPR host whose name escapes me, but he is African-American. It didn't occur to him that Terry Crews would have any sense of violation or mm-hmm. modesty or personal space at all. Well, not even that. I mean, even down to just saying things and expecting them to take it. I was thinking about that NPR host whose name escapes me, African-American, who was invent- uh, invited to dinner at a colleague's home. And this is a colleague from NPR, you mm-hmm. know, a very liberal outfit. And they're inviting him to dinner, and he accepts and she says, well, this will be the first time I've ever had an N-word in my home. And she says it in just that kind of tone. You're like, oh, this is going to be great. The first time I've ever had a mm, in my house. And he, when he recounted this event, he was like, there was no awareness. There was no awareness not, of what I'm that would mean to me. Something naughty, but just casual. Yeah, there's just, oh, funny joke. Ha ha ha. It's like, No. Just like that, the grabbing of Terry Crews is that, like... This is a very tough guy, and the idea that he might be in any way offended or disturbed yes. or hurt is just... Yeah, it's, it's a dehumanizing. That is very frightening. I So I imagine you wouldn't grab any of these giant Nubians. We didn't have any scenes like that in this book, for No, no, no we don't. We don't, thank goodness. Um, it would be nice if we had a... It would be nice if we had a character of color again. It's been a while. In mm. fact... 
with lines. What do you think? Oh, well, wait. No, no, no. The mutants. We had the guy who died immediately, but all the whites died immediately as well. No, no, the, no. Uh, ship that went down. We had the mutants. mutants. Cotton. We had Cotton. Yes. Cotton, whose the name unfortunately was... unfortunately named uh, Cotton. Yeah. Um... Who ended up being a very good character. Oh, no, you're thinking, yes, you're thinking yes, about the... Yes, the guy uh, that, like, everyone called him... The sea devil. The sea devils. You're thinking about the Jamaican. And he's not Jamaican. Yeah, so right. everyone called him the Jamaican, but he's actually from, like, Trinidad or something. Right. never been to Jamaica at all. That's exactly right. But, but even he, was, he wasn't a character. He was, yeah. a, no. he was a story. But he was better developed than a lot of characters that we ever That was the thing. It was a guy, you know, looking at the crew and describing a couple of them and the... And there was more characterization of that crew in that three or four page section than more memorable mm-hmm. characterization than we get in that some of the entire novels. Absolutely true. I uh, I, li- I like the turn of, of the it's bigger on the inside that we get with Cratius. Yeah. He yes. says, "So vast a space inside a small box." <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. It's about time we had a new gloss on that. And it's about the master's stardus, not the doctor's. So. Yeah, exactly. I, I like what a character's going to do in the next story. <laughs> yeah, because it's like, oh, good, finally somebody's having a reaction to this that's not unexpected. Well, and, and we have... Or expected, I uh, should say. You were talking about the, the new interior of the TARDIS. We actually have them kind of referencing that or making mm-hmm. a point of that. Doctor, the TARDIS looks different. Yeah, Joe actually like points out that you, you've redecorated. There's something going on here. Yes, and she doesn't follow it up with the Patrick Troughton. I don't like it, <laughs> <laughs> which actually comes from the next story, and it's not in the novelization of the next story. Weirdly enough, I'm going to have to rewatch that story because I, I do love the Three Doctors, even though it can be quite painful to sit through at times. What else? Mm-hmm. And I really like the descriptions of the time, and not only here. We have the chiming was slow, dragged, slurred, as if the old clock was somehow running down. And oh, yes. Some really nice sentences that gave us a, a nice sense of atmosphere, even if the story didn't hang together. Yeah. Dix has always been marvelous at describing sound effects in mm. stories, and that's one of them. In fact, that whole slowing down effect... Yeah. is much more impressive on the page than it is on screen because, of course, you have RADA-trained actors running in place in slow motion. It's like, oh, you poor things. Whereas if it were the new series, they'd probably do some sort of interesting effect where you see the Doctor running faster than everybody else and they're very slow. They didn't have that ability. Mm-hmm. Of course, on film, because they were doing those scenes outside. Right. In 1972. So, Kronos um, turns out to actually be a woman, sort of, as much as Kronos is anything. Right. And um, I, I, I thought I saw that coming, but in a different context, because you've, I've complained before about how it's a standard trope for several of the writers to introduce a female companion or guest star by giving a brief description that describes how attractive she is in a completely non-specific way. Yeah. As if they were sort of a generic attractiveness. It's not in any way called the place of civic. Right. Well, that... <laughs> the teacup that they are experimenting on is described as, I think, comely or handsome or something to the point where I thought 
the cup and saucer would turn out to be a woman later on in the story. <laughs> <laughs> it did not. I was actually kind of relieved. That's but then insane. I was kind of curious to maybe see a screenshot of this china and see how good looking <laughs> it really is if that merited a mention oh, in the book. Oh, Lord. I'll speak but I thought that was the tip-off. Is Galea... Um, is Galea described in that way at all? She's described as a sort of a red-headed bombshell, but more specifically, like mm-hmm. specific attributes are described in a way that I, like I said, I actually thought she was kind of a great big character. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. because she's just... Well, yeah. even the way she acts, it, it, she's, she's kind of... Yes, she is that comely, seductive woman, but yeah. she's a strong yeah. woman. And there's even a point where she's like, she kind of tells someone, like, don't don't treat me like that. Yeah, like, she seems like the sort of woman who could probably balance a plate on her breast. Yeah, <laughs> and she and she commands respect. We said, come on, we mean so. quite literally. She performs acts with plates. <laughs> no, what I'm complaining about is a sort of standard. You know, here is you know here is Barbara, here is Vicky, you know, here is Joe. That is true. Don't worry, she's attractive. You can stand to look at her, sort of a generic, oh, and she's also beautiful, or yeah. she's also attractive in a way that's non-specific. True. Un- unlike, say, Bill Filer, who they said was pleasantly ugly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we did that with some of the guys as well. Like, oh, he's handsome. And also a very generic sort of, handsome in what way kind of way. Yeah. It doesn't give you actually much specific characterization. That is true. In fact, that's something that's been hitting me since I'm reading ahead in The Three Doctors. And Dick seems to be describing all of the uh, guest cast as com- looking completely different than they do on screen. I'm like, why is he going this route? But it doesn't matter because that's an earlier novelization. This is late Terrence Dicks. Or he, the beginning of late Terrence And he Sticks. doesn't seem as tired of London and tired of life yet as he does in the other later adaptations we've read. He really doesn't. If anything he's putting too much into it with the freneticism of the plot but also he didn't write the plot. He he didn't but this is part of his own time period. In fact one of the uh, people on Goodreads said that about it. Mm -hmm. uh, That that's probably why he's giving it as much attention as Mm. he is. I am looking up right now. I'm just looking up and listeners if you hear typing sounds it is me looking up the list of doctor who novelizations because i want to know what surrounded this and how long it had been since Dix had done one because if it's 1986 we've seen this is when a lot of original writers are being asked to adapt their own scripts so terence Dix has some time off for once and this is 1986, right? Yeah, of course it doesn't help that I've had like a whole bottle of sangria now, so I'm like, ooh, I cannot see my face. Um, How often can you really see your own face without assistance? Well, that's true. That's true. Where well, the, if you try hard enough, you can at least look at your nose. That, <laughs> that's true. Okay, September 1985, you're right. Book is as old as me. Yeah, Bless your tiny little black heart. Okay. <laughs> See, so, you didn't have to say giant black man. <laughs> I you did found not something to. else to say. I found it's not that hard. Else. Okay, the other books that Terrence Sticks wrote in 1985 were The Mind of Evil, which we've read. Mm-hmm. We were like, eh. The Crotons. The Crotons. We had the Crotons, exactly. And that's it. He only did three books that year. Because the other books that were written that year were The Awakening, which we're going to get later. That's by its own author. The Mythmakers, Donald Cotton. Mm. Uh, Ian Martyr, 
God damn it, Frisky. Stop itching. You're ringing your bell. Yes, I'm talking about you. <laughs> Me? Yes, exactly you. And this is the kind of quality cat-shaming content that you tune in Exactly. For. This is what you pay us for, so go to Patreon and pay us something, and we'll give you something <laughs> in return. Cody to fuss at his cat. Yes, exactly. For ringing the bell he put around the cat's neck. Ian Martyr did uh, The Invasion that year, before Taron Sticks Crotons. Robert Holmes wrote his only novelization that year, and that's going to be significant once we finally know who Robert Holmes is, because we know him from the Crotons, but we're going to get the good stuff soon. We're not getting space pirates ever again, thank God. Thank you. Donald Cotton wrote his two books that year, uh, two of his three. Uh, And Eric Sayward actually wrote a novelization that year. Amazing. And it was of Colin Baker's first story. That's it. Oh, I'm sorry. And William M's Galaxy 4, which we, of course, admire for <laughs> weird reasons. And Glenn McCoy's Not Timelash. Not admire, just can't seem to forget. Yes. Can't seem to get and it out of Glenn, our head. And Glenn McCoy's Timelash, which we will never be able to forget once we finally got in there. So, yeah, this was, uh, this was a kind of a uh, low, an easy year for Terrence Sticks. So mm-hmm. I think that's why we're seeing him paying a little more attention to it. A little it. more care, a little more love, a little more... Mm. Well, yeah. maybe not as tight a deadline. We just have yeah. you know, a contract for three or four lined up in a year. I mean, we still get lines like Orgy of Destruction on here. True. So. Let me look and see how many books... Stop it! He's itching at the collar. That's because Danny put the collar on him and now he's trying to get it off. I am in the... Is envious of cats' ability to scratch behind their ears with their hind leg. Well, if you try hard enough, you can do it too. <laughs> um, how many books would he write after this? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Wow. Yeah, so throughout the 80s, his input is going to go down significantly. It's going to be, it'll be a while when we get into the 80s before we have three Dick's books in a row. For that matter, we won't even have two in a row after a little while. Whereas in the 70s, uh, I am literally reading this off the page. Dick's, 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 Dick's. Hinchcliffe. Dick sticks, dick sticks. I mean, if limericks go, I've heard more clever. I know. I do try, though. That's <laughs> probably why he cares so much about it at this point, because he's got the time to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is a story that he, well, if he doesn't like it, he at least edited it and is at least trying to improve it a little bit, though there aren't that many changes. So in the script, is it uh, this easy for Stu to bait Ruth with sexism? Yep. Like, to manipulate her. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Well, of course, if you feel you need to have a man in charge, that... Yeah, that's Sloman. Yeah. That's Sloman. And it might even be Barry Letts, because Barry Letts, we have to give him credit. He's about to introduce the first truly feminist Doctor Who companion. That being said, it's a male writer, introdu- a male writer, a male producer, and a male script editor introducing the first female fem- feminist Doctor Who companion. So, yeah, six of one, half dozen of another. 
So there's that. The right hand giveth, the left hand taketh away. Usually does. Hmm. Anything else? I'm not my sister's keeper was kind of funny, though. Oh, that's true. <laughs> though I will say, the brigadier is never stupidest than when he says something about all females undercover, something like that, and that sets Ruth off immediately, and she's like, oh, fuck you. We are definitely going to follow Well, yes, actually, yeah. that scene kind of worked, because that is in character or something that he would say. Except... Um, except he would to Joe. No, he wouldn't include Joe in that, because yeah. she's a full-fledged member of UNIT. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like... So it's just just unusual. Really water for him. No, it really doesn't. It doesn't. When the Brigadier is being, uh, being anti-feminist, it's just... Why? I know you're of that generation, but why? Mm. You've worked with strong women your entire career, so why? I feel like the brigadier is the major flaw of the characterizations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. So it's kind of a good thing when we get to the 80s and he gets rehabilitated in a major way. Mm. Because The Five Doctors is actually his second appearance in the, the 80s, and he's much much better it's like he's laid down and thought about it for a while <laughs> back to amusing banner um like this whole thing about the tough pheasant oh, yes. you are perfectly the tough capable pheasant. of constructing the circuit and i'm sure you're equally capable of eating a tough pheasant on my behalf and she goes and it is indeed the lead tough tough pheasant. Pheasant. <laughs> for real. Well, a frilly dinner pheasants uh, in in their defense pheasants are very easy to overcook <laughs> they're tiny they're like game hens I liked uh, Joe Grant becoming Jojo Grant. Yes. Oh, yes. Very briefly. Thank God. Yeah. That doesn't last for long, but (laughs) she's like, oh, no, that's even too silly for me. The important thing (laughs) is she didn't stay in Troy. No, she did not. Thank God. Anything else before we go on to Goodreads? Mm, There was something in here about the master not using his influence over Galea um, because she already kind of... Yes. Uh, was wooed by him. Uh-huh. Um, which I, I, I found interesting. Um, and then also uh, Dalios explaining to the doctor that he immediately felt kind of evil from the master, whereas he felt good from the doctor. Yeah. And just him being this kind of uh, older being... It was one of his understandings of the mysteries of the world, in a way. Which is interesting, because probably at this point, the Doctor and Dalios aren't that far apart in age. In age, yeah. Yeah, they may be maybe a hundred years apart. I mean, we have said, we have had the Doctor already make his slip of the tongue races. I've been a scientist for several thousand, and it's like, Mm. no, no, you haven't, dear. You're only like... You're only 700 if you're a day. <laughs> but yeah. Frisky, are you going to keep doing this throughout the Goodreads? Uh-huh. Are you? It's kind of really? Alright, keep licking your tail. That'll keep you occupied. It usually does. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our new Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it. If we're discussing the book ourselves, you may get your review read out loud here. Dalton, I'm going to have you bring me Sangria from now on because that's probably the, the smoothest I've ever read that. <laughs> the most smoothest ever. 
ever. Most smoothest ever. <laughs> it's like smooth jazz. Yahoo. Oh. Nobody, but nobody wrote a review in our Goodreads group for this. So that kind of tells me something. But we did have people doing reviews. And the average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.29. In fact, that's kind of been the thing with all these Doctor Who books. If if they're kind of just mid-range, unless there's something truly striking about them, they're going to be somewhere between 3.25 and 3.5, uh -huh. I've noticed. Daniel Kukwa, who we've heard from before, gives it four stars and says another 1980s Terrence Dix novelization that shows his ability to produce a concise novelization that still manages to be packed full of useful em embolisms. Sorry, embellishments. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming at all. I've just had an embolism, I think you mean epiphany. Yeah. Uh, useful embellishments. <laughs> Well, we can always do a reference to Hook. Useful embellishments and expanded I ideas. Maybe we shouldn't have a sangria after all. It we, also, yeah, we, we yes, the word to the doctor. yeah, shut up, you. It also helps that the Time Monster is at the heart of his own time as TV series script editor. Nick and Nick only. Nick gives it three stars and says this is an enjoyable story for a few reasons, one of which was that it took place at a point in the storyline when the Doctor could not travel through time safely himself. That's why so, you liked it? Yeah, I guess so. So the sequence in which he could piggyback onto the Master's TARDIS signal in order to travel was clever. That is true, because that's the only way the Doctor time travels in this. He's mm -hmm. kind of uh, hitched his saddle to the Doctor's pony, as it were. Yeah. Oh, God, let's not unpack that one. That said, this wasn't one of the better master stories, which is exactly what you were saying, Dalton, for the simple reason that he was acting like a brainless supervillain, even to the point of, and this is not Nick's review, even to the point of begging for his life at the end and then pushing Joe into the doctor and running into the TARDIS and saying, ha-ha, yeah. bubbling idiots, and twirling his mustachios. That said, yeah, for the simple reason that he wasn't acting like a brainless supervillain, usually he was crazy or and dangerous, but not stupid. And in this story, he leaned toward the latter a bit too much. Still, it was a fun book to read and a good reminder of what the third Doctor was like. It's a very third Doctor book. Lean towards the latter a bit too much? Lean towards the ladder of the being... Ladder. 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 Yeah, Lean towards the ladder. Yeah, it's not like that guy who ends up falling off the ladder. You know what I mean. The guy who ends up falling off the ladder and falls gently to the ground, which is early in the book. Yes. Yeah, we forgot to talk about that. It doesn't matter, mm -hmm. though. And finally, Julian White also gives it three stars in a very brief review. A so-so novelization, scoring by not being as tedious as the original overlong broadcast version. I see it took me a long time to get round to finishing it. Yeah, understandable. <laughs> So, panelists, what were your opinions? Out of five stars, Allison, what would you give this? I'm going to go two, which okay. is maybe higher than you were expecting for me, but I, I thought it, it was is, fun. actually. It's not that great, but I enjoyed it, so mm -hmm. why should I penalize something that was a, a fun read? That's then? true. Okay. Dalton? I can't... This I, I'll do 2.75. I'm like I'm like thinking a three, but I'm like no, that's a little too high for me. 2.5 is a little low for me. Okay. Uh, 
Yeah, it just... It, it was a, there. It was there. It wasn't horrible. I don't hate this book, but it definitely was not as interesting or as, as uh, appealing to me as some of the other books that we've read. Um, again, like the other uh, reviewer said, the, the master was just kind of like... Take him out. Just take him out of the story. Make, make <laughs> some other reason for them to go. To, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I was glad to see him again. We had not had the master in a few stories. We had not, and we're going to have him this version of him I one mean, more time. I'd so. be happy to see him if he was doing something masterly. But this is just true. like he could. It literally could have been any other. Mastery. If you were masturbating, they, the master could have not been there. It could have been to the time s- ram story. Oh, yeah. it, it could have been <laughs> scientists just playing around with time and ending up pulling Kronos forward, the Master didn't even need to be there. That is absolutely true. You're right. It didn't need to be the the Master at all. He could have been completely removed. they requested the Master be in that. Yes. But I'm just saying, even without him, this story would have still kind of held itself together. He does feel kind of surplus to need. By the way, we didn't even talk about... The <laughs> fact that surplus, we didn't even talk about the fact that Atlantis's destruction just kind of happens. Yeah, and I think one of the strongest images of this, uh, the televised version is Galea standing there amidst the ruins of Atlantis and everybody dead for some reason, and she's looking up at Kronos in the sky, flapping its wings about and screeching. But it just happens, and there's no real reason for it, and it could have been done without the master. You're right. As is usually the case, my rating falls between the two before I even heard their ratings. It's a 2.5, not necessarily because it's a bad novelization, but because, again, standards for good target novelization are not just that it transcribes the story, but that it improves on it somehow. Mm. This is pretty much straightforward transcription. Apart from a few other bits where he gets into somebody's head and you realize, oh, they're reacting differently than we thought they were reacting, which doesn't happen a lot. There's not much of it. We don't get we don't get a backstory for Ruth Ingram, and I would love to know her backstory. We don't know anything about Stu and his backstory. We don't know about the Atlanteans all that much, and we know fuck all about hippie ass. Well, no more than anyone would know about hippie ass. So yeah, 2.5. So, thank you guys. Mm-hmm. And thank you fellow time travelers for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we, all three of us, we, we will be discussing the first story of season 10, the anniversary story of the three doctors, and we will be recording it live at our Chicago TARDIS room party on the night of Friday, November 29th, Somewhere around 7 p.m. or 8. I don't know Next which. year in Jerusalem sort of degrades to two weeks from now in DuPage County. Same thing, right? What? Never mind. <laughs> what are you talking about? All right. If you are attending the con, please come see us. We will have drinks, snacks. We'll have drinks, all right. We may even have um, chicks. Chex Mix. Chex Mix. We just find Will it be the bold party blend? It might be. I think I may look into that. And free giveaways. Not Patreon giveaways. We will have free giveaways. Other things. If you show up, you will get tickets like you did last year, and you will get some bit of shit shoved at you. At the end of the uh, at the end of the recording, I'm starting to see the attendance problem. <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
then he threatened to show. Yes, to, to quote that MST3K episode, I don't think the highway was the problem. Yeah, plus the announcements of the winners of the Patreon giveaway, assuming anyone actually signs up. At any rate, the specific time and place of the party will be available that day on our Facebook page at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word and no spaces, and I'll also tweet out the necessary info. Dalton Hughes will be with me the entire day, uh-huh. and Alice and Fitch Seyfried will be joining us for the party. So all three of us will be there. Plus, I think Trey Cortez said he might just join us. We have to get another mic. We have a jo- uh, joint. We have a... Uh, what is that called? We have an outlet. It's not legal in Illinois till January. Well, that's true. We, we have, have a fourth a input. An input for another <laughs> mic, so we could probably have him along. Oh, God. If not, you, we'll just have to hold it between us and I, sh- do duets. Oh, God, I'm going to be sung- hung over tomorrow. You can also visit our nearly pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash You know the rest. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. What did you put in that bottle, Dalton? What did you give him? Oh, it was lovely sangria. Our new theme by Aaron S. is available on his YouTube channel at tinyurl.com forward slash y32b8f55, along with many, many others. Give him a follow and a thumbs up, won't you? Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. We hope to see you at Chicago Tardis in two weeks. And enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. That was lovely. <laughs> so one thing we didn't talk about is... Um, pop music? Let's talk about... Pop music. Pop music. Talk about... Pop music. Sorry. Is Kronos evil or more of a sort of neutral Galactos destroyer? Oh my god, why would you bring that up in the, in the after because credits? Because I didn't think about it until you were at Goodreads. Oh god, okay, let's talk about it. Well, we don't have to Well, all. no, 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 yeah. I think we can, because I can put this in the after credits. It'll inspire people mm-hmm. to actually listen to us some more. Or with the magic of editing, he can put it in the Middle. actual I'm conversation. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> it would interrupt the people flow. People say, why is he so surly all of a sudden? No, that was 20 minutes later. Yeah, he so, was surly. so what was your question again? Because is, I'm confused. Is Kronos benevolent? Is this Kronos evil, evil or malevolent? just sort of a neutral? No. neutral. No. Kronos is outside of good and evil. Okay, that's Kronos what I was, is a force of nature. That's what I was saying, more, more of a galactic. Yes, as a matter of. of fact, it sounds like, and I forgot to talk about this too, it was in my notes, Kronos seems to exist in the same space that the Celestial Toymaker does Mm -hmm. and that the Land of Fiction does. And Celestial Toymaker is evil. That's true. That is true, but I think that's a choice. And they talk about Kronos' gifts always being curses. That is true. But isn't that true of just about anything? That even the most benevolent Mm -hmm. gift can turn into something bad depending on how the person uses it. And it's it's implied that the people of Atlantis kind of let themselves go Whereas I and thought they were implying that Kronos just toys with them. Any good thing you can think of to ask for, but Kronos all... will figure out how to. But even the even you the celestial get. toy maker, that was kind of his thing. It was like he yeah. wasn't he wasn't really like doing anything bad to people. It was just like I'm gonna play with you. But he also set those traps. So there yeah. is that. But but it's all in the matter of interpretation. I'm thinking specifically about if you give a kid a video game system. Now, they can play it, and they can enjoy it, but they could also get to the point where they're dependent on it, they don't get away from it, what have you. Do you blame the child? Do you blame the video game system? 
Do you blame Kronos? Do you blame Kronos? <laughs> because Kronos is the fresh maker. Kronos gives him <laughs> all the time to play video games. Oh I've been meaning I do I forgot to say that earlier. Yeah, do you blame Hippie Ass? Because Hippie Ass, as we know, smells of marijuana and tastes even worse. Mm. Yeah, it, it comes down to it's the way it's the way you use it, I think. That with great power comes great responsibility. Well, to some degree, yeah. Because Kronos sounds like at the time that they had it enslaved. Yeah. It gave them everything they wanted by time scooping it from other places. Mm-hmm. But think of the sort of backlash that gives us if we're talking mm-hmm. in terms of say oh god, if we're talking in terms of say the uh the Wiccan uh worldview and we're talking about any harm none do without wilt. There's going to be backlash if you do do something wrong. If you're scooping things from the future, what's going to happen when the backlash comes when those time periods start missing it? Do you think it's the fact that Cronus wasn't doing it intentionally, but it was just an inevitable consequence of what they were asking Cronus to do? Well, and that's what happens when the doctor asks for the master's freedom. The master ends up free. And (laughs) Cronus says, but I did what you asked me to do. Why are you asking me to grab him now? You already asked for him to be free. And it's like, yes. That makes sense. A force of nature Yeah, there's totally a link in there, too, where Cronus is being a dick. And not a Terrence. Yeah, but keep in mind, there's something also about Kronos, and I think this comes down to the tripartite nature of, say, the Christian God, for instance, and the multifaceted way that Hindu gods are looked at, that anything that godlike is going to have multiple facets. Mm. The Kronos that we see destroying Atlantis and swallowing up that one guy whose name we've forgotten... Mm who corrects the master's equation and says, it's E equals C squared. Mm-hmm. No, 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 it's no, Q before. Q dear, yes. Oh, you made me forget my line. Nah, 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 nah. Um, that is the beast version of Kronos. Yeah. The woman that we see granting the master's life is the, uh, it could even be the, the, uh, the ego and the superego for that matter. Yeah. No. I've never understood those terms quite properly. I think the the bestial Kronos would be the id, and I think probably the woman would be the super ego, because that's the one that controls almost I everything else. The super else. ego was social controls from the outside. Oh, that's right. You're right. So the ego would be the control. So maybe the social control from the outside is the Atlanteans putting on Kronos this idea. Oh, it's a god. It's giving us what we want. Oh, it's a devil. It's giving us what we want, and it's causing us to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and neither of those things is true. Not exactly God, true. Oh, it's beyond yeah. all of those things. Which is, it's bizarre to think of this story as being that deep. But if Barry Letts had any had his fingers in it, Barry Letts was very very into uh, Buddhism at this point and the Eastern religions. He probably would have done something like that. Which is why the guy that he visits up the mountainside is a monk. And we end up seeing him later as a Buddhist monk. Mm. It's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I think that's it. I don't know if that answers your question. It does. It's an interesting topic. It's such a shame that we get a story like this that makes us think about it still. That's, as an afterthought. Yeah, that's that's late Doctor Who for you. Anyway, I think that's a good place to stop. The daisiest daisy I'd ever seen. Oh, I love that line. Yeah. I absolutely love that line. <laughs> yes. <laughs>